I received a phone call at 4 a.m. in the morning, um, and it was obviously a you know a wise guy, a thug, and he he asked me whether I cared about the life of my daughter Annie, who was then four years old. Long before John Dowd was hired by Major League Baseball to investigate Pete Rose, he was a Justice Department prosecutor who took the lead in taking down the mafia. When I got to court the next morning, they brought the defendants in. I went over to their table. Their lawyers had not arrived. And I told them that I'd received this terrible call. And I told them if I got another one, I'd kill all of them with my bare hands. This is John Dowd's journey, from joining the Marines to prosecuting the mob to investigating baseball star Pete Rose, which led back to the mob. In my last episode, former baseball commissioner Faye Vincent provided an exclusive behind-the-scenes account of the Pete Rose investigation, which began with a tip received by the outgoing commissioner, Peter Uberoth. Uberoth got a call from Sports Illustrated telling him, giving him notice, warning, that they were going to run in a week or two, I think in a week, and a big expose that they had broken a story that Pete Rose had been betting on baseball as a player and as manager, and it was going to be a blockbuster of a revelation. Soon after that tip, John Dowd would enter the picture, eventually producing a 225-page report, the Dowd Report, that led to the banishment of Pete Rose from baseball, a result Rose is now challenging again. I'm Michael Schulder, and this is Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. John Dowd, welcome to Wavemaker Conversations. Thank you. I'm delighted to be with you. I was recently speaking with Faye Vincent, a former Major League Baseball commissioner who was deputy commissioner in 1989 when that investigation was conducted. And here's what he told me about how you were hired. Giamatti said, well, you've been around. Who do you want to do this investigation? And I said, the guy's name is John Dowd. He's in Washington. He's a prosecutor. Uh, Just left the Justice Department. He's a tough cookie. He's a former Marine, he's 6'5", he's all Marine, he's yes sir, no sir, he salutes at the drop of a hat, you will like him, he's your kind of guy, he's, he's all business, he's buttoned up, he's been around, he knows this game, and uh, he's very plugged into the FBI. Fair introduction? Well, that, that's fair, except I'm marshmallow on the inside. You're a marshmallow on the inside. I have all these children, you see. How many children do you have? I have five children we adopted and then uh, 11 grandchildren. So I'm going to come back to your children and I'm going to come back to the marshmallow. Let's start with the Pete Rose story first because Faye Vincent told me, he said, we hired John Dowd, Bart Giamatti called him up that night and talked to him on the phone. What did Bart Giamatti say to you on the phone? Do you remember? I do remember. I remember it uh, very well. I had just completed a tax uh, trial, defending a tax case in Atlanta. And I came in the house around 10.15, 10.30, and the phone rang. And I just picked it up, and Faye was on the line, and he, he said, I want you to talk to my friend Bart Giamatti. 
And um, up on the phone came this, you know, magnificent uh, uh, gentleman. He told me that he was in Washington to select a special counsel for the then commissioner, Peter Uberoth. He wanted to chat, so he began to, you know, ask me about my background. And one of the things that I'll never forget, and it was true throughout our relationship, we only knew each other for six months after that, was that he could ask a question without giving offense, probably better than anyone um, I've ever encountered. And so he proceeded to question me for about 40 minutes. You know, my views and my background and what I'd done and, and why. And then he said, could you be on an airplane at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning to begin this case? And I said, yes, I could. He asked me if I had any conflicts. I told him I didn't. He then said, you know, here are the rules. Everything you do, the world will see. When I'm commissioner, I belong to the fans. And, um, you know, I took that to mean that it had to be perfect and that what everything we did would be uh, scrutinized by the public. And he asked me if I had any difficulty with that. I said no. And um, I, the only thing I insisted on is that I have his full authority and that, that I was in charge, but I would constantly consult with he and Peter and Faye throughout, and those were agreeable terms to him, and that was it. You know, it must have been around 11.30, quarter 12, we finished up, and I was on the plane to Cincinnati at 8 o'clock the next morning. And at that point, before we get into the details of Pete Rose, at that point, what was your background? My background was that I had been a trial lawyer, a criminal trial lawyer primarily, although I'd done a lot of civil tax cases. But I was then in the organized crime and racketeering section, and I had conducted these very large, complicated cases involving the mob. And particularly, I instituted the RICO statute um, which was enacted in 1970, and I tried the first two RICO cases, one in New York, which established the constitutionality of the statute, and the other one was in Richmond, Virginia, which was a massive corruption case. So I had a lot of experience investigating. John, pause there for one second for the general audience. You said you instituted the RICO statute. Right. R remind us what RICO stands for. Yeah, the RICO statute was enacted as part of the Organized Crime and Safe Streets Act of 1970. And it was designed to attack the organization of organized crime rather than fighting these battles of attrition where we convicted people of any offense at all. The RICO statute set out a pattern of racketeering activity that encompassed all the major federal and state felonies. And the burden was actually heavier, but the, the remedies were extraordinary in that the penalties, it was a 10-year felony, and we could take the property of the ill-gotten gains 
that the mafia had. So give me an example of one person whose name we might know who you went after and got on the RICO statute. Well, probably, I mean, the seminal case was the Parnes case, Milton Parnes and his wife. Uh, Milton had just uh, come out of Lewisburg Penitentiary having served 10 years for stolen securities. He worked for the uh, Gambino family. He was on the DeCalvacanti tapes in New Jersey instructing his fellow mafioso on how to defeat special agents of the IRS. He was a brilliant financier. He was a loan shark who never, uh, for the Gambino family, that never loaned under $50,000 to anyone. And um, he had just come out of jail, and he and his wife uh, ran a travel agency out of West Orange, New Jersey, to a hotel and casino in St. Martin, known as the St. Martin Hotel and Casino, and it was owned by a fellow named Goberman from Pennsylvania. And what they did is they took junkets of people from New York and New Jersey down and told Goberman and people would incur debt markers, and it was his obligation to collect the markers. He told Goberman he couldn't collect the markers when in fact he was collecting them. Goberman ran out of cash, and then that's when the loan shark came in and said, well, we can loan you cash to run your casino, but you're going to have to secure the debt to me by the stock of the St. Martin Isle Hotel and Casino. It wasn't soon thereafter that Martin, that Milton Parnes and his wife owned the controlling interest of the casino, but had never collected, claim he never collected the markers, what in fact he had. So they stole the market money and stole the hotel and casino. That was the pattern of racketeering activity. It was the first major case brought in the country, it was brought in the Southern District of New York. I had partnered with the United States Attorney's Office, the fraud section there, which is a distinguished office. And uh, Roy Cohn defended because he was the consigliere of the Gambino family. And um, it was a very high-profile case. And after seven weeks of trial, we convicted Parnas and his wife on all counts, including the racketeering. They took an appeal to the Second Circuit, and Judge Friendly, who was then the chief judge, sat on the panel. And uh, without further ado, they... They affirmed the convictions and upheld the constitutionality of the statute. Parnas and his wife went away for 10 years, and we were able to recover uh, uh, many of the proceeds, a lot of the cash, under the, uh, the forfeiture provisions uh, of the statute. So it was a po it's a powerful tool. Then my job in terms of institution was to train all of the strike forces throughout the country, the other 17 geographic strike forces, the United States attorneys, the FBI, the IRS, etc., so that they all understood how to put the cases together. Thus began within the FBI what is known as the Quality Case Program, and that has reigned ever since. I also had the, the job of reviewing uh, every proposed RICO case to be brought. No one could bring a case unless it went through 
a very rigorous review process in the Department of Justice, which I led. They couldn't bring the case unless it was signed off by the Assistant Attorney General of the Criminal Division. So it was very carefully done because we didn't want to abuse the statute. So we got off the business of chasing the wise guys for petty crimes and chased them for very substantial crimes. I left the department in 78. By 1987, the organized crime section had convicted the top of every mafia family in the country and put them in jail. So not a bad legacy for a marshmallow. <laughs> That's right. In a moment, how the threat by a mobster to harm John Dowd's daughter was ultimately resolved. Also, the decision Dowd faced after graduating from Emory Law School. It was December 65. The, the war in Vietnam was, was on. I sensed that one way or another they were going to call my number, but I'd been offered a, a chance to have the Georgia senators get me a pass. Why John Dow turned down the pass and joined the Marines, just like his brother Tom, a Marine lieutenant who would not make it home. At breakfast the morning we were going to bury Tom, one of my uh, relatives said to my mother, you know, Mary, I never see you cry. And she didn't say anything. She was about redheaded, about five foot high. And uh, later on, when we were at the cemetery and she had the flag, I asked her, I said, Mom, you didn't say anything when they mentioned you didn't cry, and I haven't seen you cry, and you didn't cry when they gave you the flag. And she told me that she refused to cry in public. But she said, when I'm alone with my pillow at night, you know, I do my crying. This is Wavemaker Conversations. I'm Michael Shoulder. With Domino's new piece of the pie rewards, you earn a free medium two-topping pizza after just six online orders of $10 or more. Need some reasons to order? Throw a half birthday party for your husband. Happy 36 and a half. Or your cat. <coughs> or get in touch with your vegetarian side. Hold the pepperoni. But we think free pizza's reason enough. Start earning points toward free pizza with our $5.99 mix and match deal at Domino's.com today. Rewards program is open only to U.S. residents 13 and older with a pizza profile account. Only one order per day earns points. Complete details at Domino's.com slash rewards. You must select this limited time offer. Prices, participation, and charges may vary. Love listening to your favorite stations online? Download the Radio.com app to get on-the-go access to hundreds of HD radio stations, award-winning podcasts, and top entertainment and music articles. Go to apps.radio.com for more information or download today from the iTunes Store or Google Play. You're listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. I'm Michael Shoulder. My guest is John Dowd, whose investigation, The Dowd Report, led to the banishment of Pete Rose from baseball. Right now, we're talking about his earlier role as one of the government's lead prosecutors of the mafia. When you bring these cases that threatened and succeeded in destroying entire mafia empires, there was a lot at stake for organizations that were accustomed to using violence to get their way. Was there any fear on your part or the part of your associates that, you know, you could be jeopardizing yourselves personally during this whole episode? It was in the back of your mind, but we had the FBI who had our backs and the other agents were all good. Uh, the IRS, the Postal Service, DEA, et cetera, they were very strong, but there was no question 
given the fight against organized crime, that the president would turn out the Marines if he had to to protect us. But, you know, there was some concern. In the Parnas case, I was um, threatened by a fellow loan shark on a related case where he was compelled to testify before a grand jury. And there was one other case where I was assigned specially in Connecticut on a, a, a case where the main witness in the killing of a federal witness had recanted his testimony and made allegations against the New England Strike Force and the alcohol, tobacco, and firearms agents who had brought the case. All three defendants had been sentenced to death originally. Then the main witness at the institution of the, the mafia defense attorney in Providence had recanted his testimony. So I was assigned to go to Connecticut to appear before Judge Cleary and handle first the petition for new trial, which lasted 20 weeks. And then I was, I, I was in charge of two special federal grand juries we're looking into the recantation, the subordination of perjury, the obstruction of justice by the council in Providence. And in that case, uh, about the fourth week, what happened is about the fourth week of the uh, hearing on the petition for new trial by the defendants, uh, I received a phone call at 4 a.m. in the morning. Um, and it was obviously, a, you know, a wise guy, a thug. And he, he asked me whether I cared about the life of my daughter, Annie, who was then four years old. And um, I, I won't say what my response was on the phone. So I was the only one in this entire proceeding that didn't have U.S. Marshal protection because of the, the violent nature of the defendants and many of the witnesses in the case. There were, there were 35 to 40 U.S. Marshals assigned to this proceeding in uh, Judge Cleary's courtroom, uh, including the defendants. Uh, but I was the only one without protection. Uh, even the strike force attorneys and ATF agents were protected. I've never had such an overt threat. Um, of course, I reported it to the marshals. But when I got to court the next morning, uh, they brought the defendants in. And people might not know is these mafia defendants tend to be, try to be charming boys in the courtroom and spend time talking to prosecutors. It's a very odd arrangement where they, they sort of try to yuck it up with you. Um, but in any event, I went over to their table. Their lawyers had not arrived. And I told them that I'd received this terrible call. And I told them if I got another one, I'd kill all of them with my bare hands. So they went crazy in the courtroom, as, as did their lawyers. But Judge Cleary took the bench, and they told him what I had done and said. And he looked at him, and he said, well, he hadn't killed him yet, so let's move on with the hearing. That phrase, and you, you, you said it publicly in court, kill him with your bare hands. I did. I never got another call, by the way. After that conversation, I wouldn't call you either. <laughs> But I do want to I do want to ask you something because now you know here here I called you to talk about the Pete Rose investigation which which you're really famous for that name the Dowd report John Dowd that's why I called you but we we have to keep rewinding now because from the marshmallow to the guy who says I'll kill you with my bare hands 
to a little bit earlier, your Marine experience. You are a Marine. Right. And that's one of the things that Faye Vincent kept talking about when he hired you. Always a Marine. Always a Marine, right. And what was your experience in the Marines? Well, I joined the Marines in when I got out of law school in December 1965. And I should interrupt right there because you went to Emory Law School, one of the finest law schools in the country here in Atlanta, and you have donated the original copy of the signed agreement between Pete Rose and Major League Baseball. It is sitting there. I'm going to post a picture of it sitting there in the Emory Law School library right now. That's right. Well, I gave the, my entire report, my leather-bound report, which is some 10, 11 volumes, and the agreement itself. So you got out of Emory Law School in what year again? I finished up in December 65. I'm, technically, I think I'm the cl- with the class of June of 66, and I signed up in the Marine Corps. My brother, Tom, who was a Marine lieutenant, a platoon commander we had lost um, in Vietnam in 1967, but he went to St. Bernard College, where I went, and also Fordham. He was already part of the platoon leaders class in the Marine Corps. So it was December 65, the, the war in Vietnam was on, my college roommate was a platoon commander, and I sensed that one way or another they were, they were going to call my number, but I'd been offered a, a chance to have the Georgia senators get me a pass. But I thought it was the right thing to do, and, and from all listening to Tom, I thought the training was terrific. So in March of 66, I reported to Officer Candidate School at Quantico, Virginia. Can I have you pause there for a second? You just went through that story very quickly, but the idea that somebody was offering you a pass, that you didn't have to go to Vietnam, from that moment to the time that you decided... I think it's the right thing to do. I'm going to enlist. I think it was the way I was raised. My dad uh, was a remarkable man. He he joined the Navy uh, when he had four children. He was age 35, which he was. He did not have to join the Navy. You know, he was six foot six and a half. He wanted to be a submariner, if you can imagine, but they said he was too tall, so he help run the, the Boston Navy Yard and make sure the British got all those destroyers and cruisers. And he was a great retail merchant, but... We're talking about World War II now. World War II, that's right. I was born in 41, baptized on December 7th, 1941. You know, so I remember, you know, being in a naval hospital, having my tonsils out, and my head. I had four uncles who were also in World War II. Uh, I had a, a merchant mariner, uh, Joe Francis was Navy Army Medical Corps. Jim was artillery officer who landed in the second wave at Omaha Beach. Dennis was a Naval fighter pilot. So I was surrounded by, at a very young age, you know, men who just stepped up. And then my dad had a friend named uh, Delaney from Dorchester, Charlestown, Massachusetts, who was at Pearl Harbor, and then landed on every island in the Pacific. So I'm growing up with these stories of these extraordinary men. And then I had an uncle, not by blood, but by friendship, named Hamilton D. South. And he was a Marine colonel, uh, aviator, and had fought at Saipan, 
Tinny and Guam. So you can imagine from the time, I mean, all the way through the, the 40s and into the 50s, I'm meeting and associating and listening to stories about extraordinary selflessness and sacrifice. And so, you know, in the way we were raised, I was one of eight children. The idea of not doing it right never occurred to me. And then, you know, sort of following Tom's great example of joining the Marines. Plus, I thought, you know, if I'm going to war, I want to be very well trained. And I knew the Marines would train me well. And indeed, they did. And for the rest of my professional life, I've been extremely grateful. Even though I was well-raised and well-bred by my parents, the best thing I ever did was to go in the Marine Corps. You know, you learn how to be a man, you learn about excellence, and you learn about toughness, but it's not physical, it's mental, and you become mentally tough. You know, I'll tell you about one incident that occurred to me. Uh, The third week in boot training at OCS, I fractured my right ankle uh, going down the stairwell with two uh, bags on my back. And normally, you are you know, medically unqualified and put aside to go to training at some other time. And it was the blackest day of my life. And I had this magnificent black gunnery sergeant. I said, I think I can make it. Would you back me up? And he did. And the captain backed me up and the major. And so the battalion commander allowed me to stay, heal up in three weeks, and make it through OCS. And, you know, I learned about the extraordinary selflessness of my Marine superiors and comrades and and also learned you just never give up. Um, So it's those rather searing experiences that, you know, I'll never forget and I've tried to carry with me and, you know, tried to behave uh, accordingly uh, for the rest of my life. Did you, were you deployed to Vietnam? No, I was, I had orders and was on the way when my brother Tom was killed in March 1 of 67. So they put a hold on me. So I never, I never engaged in combat in Vietnam. I was just speaking to uh, a, a wonderful psychiatrist and best-selling author, Irvin Yalom, and we were just talking about how people grieve. And, and he said, look, that nothing compares to the grieving of a parent. Right. You were one of eight kids, but I, I know from having three myself, it, you know, eight, ten, one, three, it just, uh, the pain can't be any less. How, how did your parents uh, cope with the death of your brother? Well, it was very difficult. My mother was the strongest person I ever knew in my life. When we went to the funeral at Arlington Cemetery, you know, we have so many relatives on both sides. She came from a family of nine. My dad came from a family of five. So there used to be a motel near a national airport, now Reagan Airport. We actually filled that entire hotel with relatives, but the Dowd and McGuire families. And at breakfast the morning we were going to bury Tom, one of my relatives said to my mother, you know, Mary, I never see you cry. And she didn't say anything. She was about redheaded, about five foot high. And uh, later on, when we were at the cemetery and she had the flag, I asked her, I said, Mom, 
You didn't say anything when they mentioned you didn't cry, and I haven't seen you cry, and you didn't cry when they gave you the flag. And she told me that she refused to cry in public, but she said, when I'm alone with my pillow at night, you know, I do my crying. But she was just a rock throughout the whole thing, and, and uh, you know, grateful for the treatment by the Marines and many, many people who gave her great comfort and consolation. And uh, there's a wonderful story that comes out of my dad um, was a grieving Irishman. He felt responsible for Tom's death. And that's not unusual for a father to feel that somehow he was responsible, despite the fact that we talked to him about it and told him that it was Tom's clear decision to go to war. So it was very, very difficult for my dad. And um, I think it broke his heart. Out of this, the most remarkable thing, Dan, Tom was part of the 2nd Platoon Kilo Company, 3rd Battalion, 1st Marines, which is a the battalion is one of the great battalions in the history of the Marine Corps, and they've never forgotten Tom. But after Tom died, over the next two years, 68, 69, 20 members of his platoon on their own nickel came to see my mom and dad. And it was... Um, it's just one of the most amazing things I've ever seen in my life. I've talked about it a lot to people, and I've told, and matter of fact, I told it to the battalion at a dinner that they had in Quantico, and I said, that's when I learned what selflessness is in generosity. And it was of enormous comfort and consolation to mom and dad. Um, so, But it was an extraordinary lesson to me, and it's... You know, not only the example of my parents being charitable, but it's what I've tried to do with my success as a trial lawyer is to take care of Marines and Navy SEALs and, and Special Forces and other great heroes who have somehow been caught up or harmed by this terrible bureaucratic administrative nightmare we call the U.S. government. So in the last two or three years, I've dedicated myself to doing that and have had a lot of cases and, and glad to do it and because I've just never forgot what those those young Marines did for my mom and dad, and, and no one asked them to do it. Some of them came as far as Wyoming and Utah, um, California, on their own nickel just to pay their respects. So it was an extraordinary experience and, and uh, very, very moving, powerful, but it's something that really drives me and motivates me. And I've tried to share with my children and inculcate them with the same spirit. It occurs to me that not every one of us is gonna have this, you know, this circle of relatives and people who have been immersed in that culture that you're just describing now. And yet, that idea of traveling a long distance on your own nickel, as you say, to pay your respects to somebody in person, not by a letter, not on phone, but making the physical effort. You know, you don't have to be in the military to do that. Somebody doesn't have to die in combat to do right. that. That seems to be 
an amazing example of of just how to behave in right. general in life. Right. So your five children are, are any of them in the military? And and yes. how did and how did you inculcate that in your children? Our view was to let these youngsters find their way and to and to support them every way. We never encouraged them. But my oldest son Tom was a Marine Corporal in the Gulf War. Uh, he was a mortar squad leader and uh, a terrific Marine. He graduated at, uh, in Paris Island, so he was an enlisted man. My youngest son, Daniel, um, is a Marine major today. He's a helicopter pilot of the what they call the Super Stallion, the big CH-53 Super Stallion. And he has he's done four tours, three tours in Iraq, and one in Afghanistan, and his specialty, believe it or not, is flying night special operations in that giant helicopter. So he's a magnificent young Marine. They both have the same spirit you find in all these young Marines is how how much they love each other and how much they'll do anything for anybody. They are just remarkable people. So, But they chose it on their own. Dan went through the PLC uh, platoon leaders class at Colgate, and then when he graduated, he became a lieutenant, went to flight school, and he's had a magnificent career. He's been decorated for every assignment. So we're very proud of of those two, and they're you know they're thriving, do well. We're just grateful that we, you know, they've survived. And of course, a lot of people today, I've, I've spoken to a lot of veterans, are are surviving. You know, there's one guy who I once interviewed a while back uh, when I was into, uh, I did a profile of him, and he was the highest non-commissioned officer in the 3rd Infantry Division, the 3ID here in Georgia. And he had been back and forth to Iraq so many times, and, and I interviewed him on one, before one of his deployments. And years later, you know, I just wondered, I, I hope he survived. And I reached out to him, and I called him, and he said, yes, he had survived. And I said, you know, did you suffer any wounds? He said wounds above the neck, meaning post-traumatic stress syndrome. There's a lot of it. And even more. I mean, you know, a certain degree of damage. Right. He had never been hit by fire, but the concussive effects of the nearby explosions had really impacted him in a big way. And so, you know, it's not just your children's lives now you have to worry about. It's 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 even if they survive, right. what kind of life? And how have you sort of wrapped your arms around that and cope with that, and how do you approach that? That's got to be a lot of anxiety on a day-to-day basis. Tremendous anxiety. I've never felt so helpless in my life than when I had each son in war. I mean, it's a, it's just an awful feeling. Is, But you'd make the best of it. You know, you wake up at 3 in the morning watching CNN, trying to make sure that they're all right, you stay in touch, but... Um, the families in this country who've sent their sons and daughters are just our most remarkable citizens. It takes, it takes, there's a lot of anxiety, it takes a lot of steel, and then, you know, all of our wounded, I mean, we have 40,000, 50,000 wounded, uh, these wars, and they're, they're the bravest souls you ever met. Well, you know, it's probably fitting that we've been talking for about 40 minutes now. We really haven't talked about Pete Rose yet because, <laughs> no, and I think it's fitting because what we've been talking about is in, in, in many ways more important, but in some ways 
this Pete Rose story really is, and the investigation is very important. So at some point, I want to circle back with you and talk a little bit more about the military and your work with the military and how we as a society can really do more justice to the people who are serving. Because after all, it is a very small sliver of people who are bearing a disproportionate amount of the sacrifice, right? Right. Less than 1%. I do want to circle back with you in another interview and talk more about that. Let's now come to Pete Rose. All right. On the next Wavemaker Conversation, John Dowd on his historic investigation of Pete Rose. Pete Rose was spending so much money gambling on baseball that he had to take loans, and a lot of those loans came from the mob. So we come full circle in your career. Well, that's right. And he was, when you're dealing with the wise guys on Long Island, he owed them a half a million dollars. The going rate for loan sharks is six for five. So for every five dollars he owed, he had to pay six. What I told Faye and Bart is organized crime has a mortgage on the manager of the Cincinnati Reds. Now, how do you record that in Cooperstown? If you like what you're hearing on Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious, you can subscribe on iTunes. If you have an iPhone, look for that purple microphone icon. A lot of people don't know it's there. It's right on your screen. Touch it. Search Wavemaker. Click on the Wavemaker logo and then click subscribe. It's free. If you're on Android, you can listen on the new CBS Podcast Network. Play it at play.it slash Wavemaker. And if you can't get enough of these Wavemaker stories, you can go to my website, wavemaker.me. And you can follow me on Twitter at Michael Shoulder. To all the Wavemaker subscribers, thank you for being insanely curious. With Domino's new Piece of the Pie rewards, you earn a free medium two-topping pizza after just six online orders of $10 or more. Need some reasons to order? Throw a half-birthday party for your husband. Happy 36 and a half. Or your cat. (coughs) Or get in touch with your vegetarian side. Hold the pepperoni. But we think free pizza's reason enough. Start earning points toward free pizza with our $5.99 mix-and-match deal at Domino's.com today. Rewards program is open only to U.S. residents 13 and older with a pizza profile account. Only one order per day earns points. Complete details at Domino's.com slash rewards. You must select this limited-time offer. Prices, participation, and charges may vary.